0: hope you are enjoying the vitamin sc3 podcast last week's episode with mia robinson about angelic faces was phenomenal Shaquanza did a fantastic job sharing her story with us please listen in we have a new episode this week I spoke with a special guest, Diane, who is the grandmother of Genesis, a bone marrow transplant recipient, and Diane is a teacher and sickle cell caregiver. The Vitamin SC3 Podcast is powered by the Sickle Cell Community Consortium. This new broadcast features different themes each week for the sickle cell community, their families, supporters, healthcare workers, and allies. Each week, episodes of the Vitamin SC3 Podcast will air in the following order. The Creative Elixir with Me and Robinson. Caring is Giving hosted by El Cole, Essential Rx hosted by Dr. Lametra Scott, and Self Care is Healthcare with Dr. Marjorie Brewer. The Caring is Given segment focuses on the stories of caregivers who have loved ones who are living with sickle cell disease. I'm a caregiver and this is my segment. Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. You are listening to the Caring is Giving segment. I am so thrilled that we have a very special guest today. I know this is a new podcast for you listeners. And so let me tell you a little bit about who I am. I am Elle Cole. I am a mom of twins, but one of my daughters lives with sickle cell SS disease, and her twin sister has sickle cell trait. My daughters are now 13 years old, and we are on this journey of learning more about sickle cell. Maybe one day she'll be a part of a study to cure sickle cell, but right now we are researching and we are learning. And so we have a guest that's really going to jumpstart that whole conversation and really get us into what sickle cell is from a... A grandmother's perspective. So without further ado, I have my guest. Please state your name and tell us a little bit about who you are.
1: Okay. My name is Diane, uh, Diane Morton. I live in uh, Richardson, Texas, which is just north of Dallas. Um, I am Janice's grandma and she has the SS sickle cell disease. Um, I say grandma, but uh, I raised Genesis since she was age three, so she's been with me, and um, to me, she's my, um, my granddaughter daughter, <laughs> so uh, our, her journey, I have been right there with her, and I've been her advocate through that journey. Um, I'm a retired school teacher, and um, I currently uh, work part-time. Awesome.
0: You just said something that I want to touch on for a second, because sometimes in our lives and our experiences, we have other guardians. And I think it's important for us to kind of touch on that because it doesn't, when we have a chronic illness, it means that whoever is loving on you and advocating for you, you have to kind of own that space and be willing to allow that. It may not be a parent, it may be a grandparent, it may be an aunt or uncle, and sometimes it's non-traditional. And we just want to say, that's okay too because whoever is loving on you that's really who is your caregiver so um, thank you for being genesis caregiver when did you find out that genesis
1: had sickle cell disease we actually knew before she was born her mom had her at a very early age and so they did a lot of testing and they did the amineal, um fluid they took that from her mom while she was um, carrying Genesis and they discovered that she had the disease and um, they could even pinpoint that it was going to be the SS disease. So we knew before she was born.
0: Wow. So for those of you who are new to this whole conversation about sickle cell, when a parent goes to the OBGYN, the OBGYN will test the mom, with what is called an amniocentesis. They will give you that opportunity to find out, but it's a choice. So everybody doesn't have to get the test, but you can choose to get the test. And if you choose to get the test, you can find out what type of genetic disorders your offspring can have. And so in Genesis case, her mom did get the amniocentesis and was able to find that out. I know in that, early, in those early years, it can be very difficult. I know for me, as a new mom, hearing about the amniocentesis test was completely new information for me. And I think it, it was scary. I was, I was young, I was married to my husband, but I was afraid. Was Genesis's mom afraid to get the test?
1: She was. Because she explained, uh, well, first of all, a needle being inserted into you is <laughs> scary, you know, and, you know, you're carrying around this child. She was, but she, we were also very um, curious as to what we were going to be up against. And so it was important. I think I pushed for it because it was important for me to know um, what they were going to be up against uh, going into having this child at such an early age. Wow. Wow. Were there
0: any type of precautions or pamphlets given after they confirmed that the, the, um, the child would have sickle cell disease? So did they give you a pep talk or did they give you resources? What was that conversation and experience like after they confirmed in utero that she would have sickle cell disease?
1: you know going looking back i don't remember a lot now. i you know they pretty much told them about the disease you know and warned them that you know there was a short life expectancy for children with the ss disease at that time and that um there wasn't really a lot i think that she may have gotten a pamphlet that didn't really explain a lot it was my research or researching more into it that um, I came up with more information.
0: Did you already know about sickle cell disease prior to that experience?
1: I'm embarrassed to say I was not woke. (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea that I had the trait and that, you know, that there was a possibility of that I could have already, that my two children could have had sickle cell disease and and that they even had the trait. So no, because it had not been something that anyone in my family had experienced. And so I was very unfamiliar with it.
0: Wow. And what you're just sharing is something that really resonates with me because I didn't know I had the trait. My husband didn't know he had the trait and it wasn't a conversation that was in our family or a part of our community. And it wasn't something that any of our parents were even aware of when we found out about our daughter. So what you're saying really resonates with me because you know, now that we're a part of this community, we know how important that conversation is. But it's amazing to me that, you know, you had a daughter who had the trait, but she didn't know. And just like she didn't know, I didn't know I had the trait either. So now things are a little different. They're testing children at newborn, what is called a newborn screening, so so that parents are more informed, but yes. it sounds like you weren't given that sort of privilege or opportunity to even tell your daughter that she was a trait carrier. Because sometimes people say in um, you know conversations that, well, what do you mean you didn't know?
1: Mm-hmm. It is
0: very common for someone not to know that they had the sickle cell trait. And We um us having this conversation right now just goes to show a lot of people, even our parents, don't know whether or not their children have the trait. It's
1: never had never been talked about. Matter of fact, I had never even heard of sickle cell disease before that. So um now that I know that, yes, I do try to educate people on it. And it's sad to say though, but it's not only the parents, but a lot of people in the medical field are not even educated about it. So it's, and that's, I know in your conversation and some of your questions, we'll get to some of that, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And I want to just take this moment to tell all of our listeners right now that sickle cell is actually the most common genetic disorder in the world. So when we have this conversation with the shock, like, you know, what do you, the, the medical professionals don't know about sickle cell disease. It is shocking and it is upsetting because it is very prevalent in our world. So sickle cell is a common worldwide disease. So that is why this conversation is so important that we really kind of jump into it. So can you describe early on what Genesis life was like? When, you know, having sickle cell disease. So as a caregiver, what were some of the type of things
1: you had to look out for? What was that experience like? At first, you know, it was like she did not have the disease because uh, she still had a lot of her mother's, I guess, embryo or the, the blood from her mom. And so the sickle cell didn't really show up until maybe... Two and a half, three years old, and at that point is when she started. We started out with asthma and breathing issues, and um, because her body couldn't fight off like a normal person, and so it attacked that part of her body. And then later, she started having the pain crisis. Really got bad at around age five, and um, started being where it was disruptive to her, her her day and her life. You know where it she it would just halt, and she'd have to take attention, and we'd have to put heating pads on, or or go to the doctor, or whatever, to um, help her with her pain.
0: So you just spoke about her mother's blood early on, and I want to let the listeners know that from zero to about six months of age it is common for children to have what is called a large amount of fetal hemoglobin. So the fetal hemoglobin is where they have more of their mom's blood. And so it's around six months that doctors believe it starts to change. And so for Genesis, it changed a little bit later, so probably around two and a half. And so it can, that progression of change can be different in every person. And sometimes children and people with sickle cell have a higher level of fetal hemoglobin longer in life. And so we just wanted to kind of explain that for our listeners. And so it sounds like once she started to have crisis, which is one of the symptoms, is not the only symptom of sickle cell, but once she started to have what is called pain crisis, it sounds like they continued. So as a child, how often was she in pain?
1: Daily. It was was something that controlled her life. Um, I have to say that we lived around the sickle cell. It was in control. we she would get up either in pain or and go to bed in pain. So it was something that she had to learn to deal with. So early on, she was um, taking medication to try to help her with that. That would make her drowsy or you know not as as tentative as she should have been. Um, early on, at age eight, she had uh, a stroke. We were a part of a study that she became as part of a study at age seven. And um, it was two sides to the study where one side she could get um, transfusions and the other side is she could take a drug. Um, And at that time we decided to do the transfusions. So she was going in every six weeks and getting blood transfusions to help her to um, be able to combat the pain and to keep it at a bay at a point where she could take her payments and stuff that would enable her to get through her daily functions.
0: Wow. So you you touched on something else that I really want to hone in on and that's children with sickle cell are often susceptible to having strokes. This is not something that is unique or uncommon. Yes, if you don't know about sickle cell and you hear about a child having a stroke, that's going to be a shock to you. But for those of us in the sickle cell community, we know that that is one of the common complications of having sickle cell. And it is is just as scary for an adult as it is for a child. So, you know, just hearing about it Did you even know early on that that could have been one of the complications? Were doctors telling you that um, about, you know, childhood? Because that's not something that we would commonly think would happen to a child.
1: Fortunately, we were a part of a study um, that was at Children's Medical Center here in Dallas. And so they were educating us uh, about the sickle cell at that time. And um, when she became a part of the study, we did know that uh, strokes was something that could happen. They don't normally happen and or they don't usually worry about it until age 12. But in her instance, she did have one a lot earlier than that. And it was a silent stroke. And it was something that they had to figure out that she had had after the fact that she had had it. At age 10, she actually had one that was not a silent stroke and that we actually saw visibly stroke um, symptoms. But at age eight, because she was in the study, she was getting these brain um, scans and different things. They detected that she had had this stroke. And so that's when they decided they had to change some of the things that they were doing for her to be able to prevent any other strokes from happening. And still she had that another stroke. So, it's very scary. Very, very scary. Absolutely.
0: To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory, so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world, as well as our independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is, what we've always done, is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. Hello everybody, we are back to really talk about stroke in children who have sickle cell disease. We left off on that point and we know that children with sickle cell disease are susceptible to having a stroke. And in Genesis case, it happened as young as eight years old. And so what we know is that doctors actually give patients what is called a TCD test, which is a transcranial Doppler test to check and see whether or not they have um, stroke. So the test is done with the ultrasound machine and it screens whether or not a child is going to have a stroke, so it tests the blood flow in their brain, and so the doctors will evaluate that, but what happens with a a silent stroke, doctors may not be able to detect that with a TCD, so a silent stroke can happen with no warning and they may not find out until after that patient receives an MRI. At MRI. So it's a little bit different. And so a silent stroke is something that sickle cell patients and their caregivers also have to look out for. So when, when Genesis had the silent stroke, did she make a full recovery or was it slow and steady?
1: She made a pretty um, good recovery from the silent stroke she had just been tested and I'm a teacher and she was going to the school where I um, teach and she was in kindergarten and uh, they felt like she was very advanced for a kindergartner. And so um, they don't usually test kids that early, but me being a teacher there and all um, they wanted to test her. And um, she tested at a level where she was actually Going to be in a gifted program here, um, and then after the stroke, um, they had her retested because she had had the stroke, and they did show that some of her markers had went down that she had tested high end. She no longer tested high end, so it didn't quite um, take everything away, or you know, it it did make a, a permanent. Uh, changed to her, but it wasn't something that was remarkable or that you could see. Okay.
0: Is there anything that you could share with families as some sort of things to look at to identify whether or not their child or loved one has had a silent stroke? Are there any markers that you could
1: share? Um, I think that with the silent stroke, you have to really kind of just say, um, first of all, is your child having headaches that they haven't been having in the past? Um, that is one good indicator that something could be going on. Um, are they all of a sudden very quiet and very um, withdrawn and for a small period of, of time? It's, when they say silent, that's truly the best description of it because there is really no really like alarms that go off or anything that really tell you that something went on. Like you said, it's really only detectable through that little scar that it leaves on the brain when they do that MRI that they're able to detect. Wow. So I know that, you know, you
0: received some information about sickle cell disease, Because you were a part of that study, is there anything that you think you wish you had known before you know, while she was a child so right after diagnosis, do you think they could have shared anything to kind of better prepare you for what was ahead.
1: I think that. um, It yes (laughs) there's a lot that could have been told. Um, I think that they need to prepare especially any parents, about what, it, how it can disrupt your life and what you need to be ready for. And I think that maybe they don't do that because it is so different in every child. And it's so it's hard to, to really know, and they don't like painting a gray picture <laughs> for you when you're, I guess, you're expecting. Um, I wish that I, I could sit in on um, of the diseases that are known or that are not so maybe known in the black community, because I think that there's a a level of not enough attention given to or not enough education. So I don't think that it should only be education maybe for just those parents. I think there needs to be a broad education about just sickle cell in the black community period. Um, we've we've attended colleges and Genesis has spoken and um, black colleges and it's, it's amazing about how those students just like I didn't know about sickle cell and so there's still a huge need just to educate the black community period about it.'re
0: you're, you're touching on something that definitely hits home for me because it is a conversation that we're still not having like we are in 2022 and there are people who don't know about sickle cell disease let alone they probably never even heard genotypes and whether or not you have sickle cell trait those are things that are now so prevalent in our conversations as a person a part of the sickle cell community. But prior to that, if you don't know somebody who has it, it's very likely that you don't even have those words on your radar. And so, you know, I love hearing you say that Genesis has traveled to different places and spoke to different groups of people because hearing it from someone who is young, I think it has a a greater impact. And so I'm glad that she is speaking about it. But you you brought up A disease that is in the black community and we know that sickle cell disease isn't only in the black community, but it is very prevalent in the black community, meaning that we have. A greater population than other populations so anybody can have it, but it is more prevalent in our community and so because of that in the healthcare system, we know that health inequity is a thing, and we know that sometimes healthcare providers don't know enough about sickle cells. So have you experienced, you know, let's talk about that experience. So what were some of the challenges with healthcare providers that you may have faced with Genesis?
1: Wow, now that's, <laughs> that's a, a, a real big thing because we lived in the emergency room, I hate to say. And um, going into the emergency room was a, huge endeavor because when we got there first of all we'd have to sit in the waiting room for hours sometime because of her lack of insurance which was also uh, another thing that you have to talk about Um, but once we got to the doctor depending upon the doctor's knowledge about sickle cell every case every time we went was handled differently Um, Some doctors were very proactive about it. You know, they got right on it. They knew what to do. Other doctors shuffled around, kind of like, you know, asked questions because as she got older, they thought she was seeking drugs because, you know, she was displaying this pain that they're questioning if she's really in that much pain, you know. Um, So, Those were some of the challenges where I had to be an advocate for her and kind of speak up as an adult because she was a child. They didn't really, um, sometimes they didn't address her at the um, type of level that they should have for the pain level that she was coming in on. And um, sometimes it would get ugly.
0: (laughs) Saying that it would get (laughs) ugly is is really an understatement (laughs) because I want to say that, you know, just to let people know that hearing that they considered this sweet Genesis just presents so sweet and soft and and loving, you know, just mm-hmm. when you meet her. So to hear that they would think that she was a drug seeker is something that that is very troublesome. And in our community, statistics say that only about ten percent of sickle cell patients may actually um, be drug seekers. So it's not that none of them are but the majority are not and that is the the bigger picture of this the majority of sickle cell patients are not drug seekers, but their pain levels. Pain is something that cannot be detected by lab work. Mm -hmm. It is not something that other people are feeling, so they can't actually see the markers. And so that's what makes this so difficult. They really have to trust that patient. And if you are seeing different people and different providers, that does complicate things because it may not be a relationship. And unfortunately, in our world, there are stereotypes placed around Black people and Black families that can complicate our health care. And so, you know, we often talk about those really challenging, upsetting, crazy moments in the ER. Can you think of one good experience that you may have had?
1: Oh, yeah, there were very good experiences. Um where we went in and, you know, it was acknowledged right away. I do have to say, Al, one thing that we do have to teach our the kids where they're very young and they have this type of chronic illness is that they have to be able to speak to their own disease and their what's going on. So you have to, like, I couldn't always just be the one only talking. I had to teach her how to actually communicate what was going on with her. I actually had to let her know what her medicines were, not only just be able to speak to what her medicines were, because she was on like nine to 12 medications at a time. So she needed to know what medication she was on, what doses that she was supposed to be receiving and what those pills look like, because um, then that's when you gain more respect from the doctors when she could speak to it herself and being at a young age then they're like oh okay well maybe you know this is legitimate because this child is speaking about what she is actually going through and being able to give me some information and something that I can measure and work with so and then to your question about having a good experience i think that those made the best experiences where i could sit and watch her actually speak to the doctors and actually take control of the conversation and feed them what they needed to know and educate them sometimes.
0: You know, on one hand, that's like a bittersweet moment. I think it's beautiful that you're able to teach her, but it also hurts because you have to prove yourself. And I think in the Black experience, We've all had an experience where we've had to prove ourselves just to be listened to. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair in life. And to also be dealing with a chronic illness and have to, you know, speak up and advocate for yourself. On one hand, we're like, well, we have to do that because I think we put on this cloak of strength and we say we have to show up in this way. But it's not it's not fair in in our world. And, you know, to have some body who's young, not, you know, a part of their youth
1: is kind of taken away by them having to learn all of these things so early. I think that's a whole nother conversation about how much of their youth is taken away, how fast they have to grow up. And that is very heartbreaking because first of all, their lives are cut shorter because of the the disease itself. And then the fact that they're not able to socialize and to have the fun that the other kids are having because she's in, she was in the hospital more than anything all through the year. I mean, I could say that she spent more than half of her year in the hospital. If you just count down the days and her hospital visits and then how long she actually stayed there, it made it very difficult for her to get through school and for her to have done that. And any any chronic per, you know person with a chronic illness to be able to actually do what the average child is doing and to be able to do it in that same you know little glint of time it's it's very difficult. I want to
0: say that all of the sickle cell patients that I know they're mar- remarkable people because mm-hmm. what happens is they have this this desire this drive that keeps them going. I'm like, you know, how can they keep going when I'm tired? And I don't have sickle cell. (laughs) And they keep pushing even when they're in pain, because what happens is sickle cell can get worse as you get older. And it's like they learn how to push through past the pain. Can you know, I feel like that question is a little bit difficult to speak to, because you're not Genesis um, yourself. But you know, in the realm of seeing her grow up and seeing the disease progress, what did you see that really kind of manifested and, you know, start talking about how that kind of drove you and Genesis to even consider a cure?
1: First of all, um, she had a huge bout of depression. And And that's another thing that we don't speak to enough and that in our community, we don't like talking about. Um, but she had a huge bout with depression where she just had lost any zeal for life. And um, once she regained that zeal and, and came through that depression, she came out stronger. I mean, when you talk about a warrior, she came out stronger. I mean, she graduated from school like a, a year earlier than she was supposed to. And because she knew that school setting was something, it was hard for her to attend eight hours a day or seven and a half hours a day. So she needed to be rid of that as soon as she could. And so she fought hard to get there. But just to her, her resilience and her look on life gave me even a better look on life because how could I complain about a little something that I was going through when I was seeing Every day she woke up with the challenge of fighting her pain and having to get through that and still do everything she had to do and then go to sleep with pain and wake up with it again and still try to do it again. So it, it speaks to a lot about who she is and now today and going through the transplant when she decided that she wanted to be, she always wanted to be like other people. She had a, a, a real huge desire. She said, if I could just be, somewhat normal, you know, I would be much, much happier. I want, and I love living, she loves living. So um, when she brought up, when we found out about the transplant or that it was a possibility because she stayed on the registry forever and they were never able to find her anyone. And there was that church that um, we saw be the match and we had talked to them and she had been, she became an ambassador for them. And she was at her first speaking event and a guy from um, NIH was there. He approached her and uh, asked her if she was interested in this transplant. And that was the first time we had heard about it or that it was a possibility um, or knew that it could be a possibility. And he gave us a contact number and we contacted those people and um, the ball started rolling from there.
0: How, how long did that take? Can you kind of give us a bit of a timeline?
1: It, it took us, um, after we actually talked to someone, it took us about a year to get everything in place, which involved a lot of paperwork. Um, they educate you about the transplant. Uh, you have to so- sign a bunch of um, waivers and, you know, just disclaimers and all kinds of things. So uh, it gave us a lot to think about. And then we visited with them. They flew us out and we visited with them. At the same time, because we didn't know if that was going to happen, and then we knew about the possibility, we start researching other transplant things as well to see if there would be something else that would maybe be closer to home. Um, none of those transpired and then NIH did come through and it took about a year.
0: A year sounds very quick to me. And I know that those papers that you sign is like a thick textbook. Mm -hmm. It's not a, it's not a small amount of paper. You know, like we think about signing the mortgage for our house. I feel like that's for those of us who are not a part of a clinical trial, that's probably the thickest documents that a regular person would see, but. The um, clinical trial documents are like twice or three times as many papers as, you know, your mortgage documents. So it's a lot of paperwork.
1: And they let you know about the good and the bad. Right up front, they're, they're telling you how many people have been involved in the trial, how many have not survived the trial. So there's the numbers are there
0: it's good to hear that they do inform you about both aspects. So I am definitely glad to hear that. I know that the bone marrow transplant is one of the cures that exists. And I know with some of the other curative therapies, they don't necessarily say that a person has been cured. So with Genesis bone marrow transplant, was it an actual cure?
1: I have to say that she went from SS to sickle cell trait. And the reason why it is an actual cure is because she took on all of her mother's uh, DNA. So she, everything that she has has been suppressed or is so very little of it that her mom is now the dominant person or her blood has now is what she's producing. She's producing healthy cells and actually producing, you know, non-sickle cells. So I wanna
0: kind of just kind of unpack that really quickly. That's a lot, right? (laughs) Because it is a lot. And I wanna say that for those people who are not familiar, early on in the conversation, we talked about Genesis Mom, for a child to have sickle cell disease, that means that, one parent has to carry the trait if the other parent has the disease that could be a possibility or the other parent has to carry the trait and if two people are together and they both have the trait there is 1 in 4 chance of them producing a child with the disease so uh Genesis's mom was actually her donor so you had talked about her being on the registry for years yes and how did it kind of come into play that her mom who you know you know became her donor.
1: Well, they first wanted someone they wanted one of her siblings. So um, unfortunately, Genesis was not really all that close to her siblings because you know they came up in different households and for other reasons. Um, and so they were not tested but they did test her, her dad. And it worked out that he was not able to because of um, some type of something that he had in his blood or his type of blood wasn't gonna be um, something that would match or that would work with Genesis uh, DNA. But her mom was a half match. And so if she was a half match, they could do it. And she turned out to be a half match, which um, then after they decided that she was a half match, they tell her, they give her a number as to, you know, just how well of a half match she is. And it was like, it could be up to a 10. I think she was like a, between an eight and a nine. But now she has 100%, you know, her mom's blood, so. It's it's been really <laughs> the science is 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 kind of crazy, uh, scary, <laughs> but um, it did work. <laughs>
0: I think that is beautiful now I want to say neither one of us are medical doctors, Mm -hmm. we are both caregivers, so this information is from a caregivers perspective. But I love that they were still able to do it with a half match, because I know there are some families who are like my child doesn't have any siblings, because I know sometimes when people find out that they and their um, spouse have sickle cell trait, they decide not to have any more children. And so in this particular, you know, world that we live in now, it doesn't have to be a whole match. It can be a half match. And so that was the case with Genesis. Is there, you know, we mentioned that they had given you a whole lot of paperwork and a whole lot of documents, but is there anything you wish you had known about the bone marrow transplant prior to Genesis receiving
1: one? <sighs> That's a loaded question. I have to say that they were pretty, pretty clear because this is not for everyone. I have to say that it's not for the meek. You really have to be dedicated and, and they wanna make sure that you are too. It's, um, it's not an easy process. It's, it's not like you just go in, her mom just gets the blood and that's, you know, you don't see the background stuff. The background stuff is that um, Genesis also, when you go in for a transplant because of the chemo that you're re- gonna receive, there's a chance that you may not be able to have children later. So um, she was able to freeze her eggs, which they also assisted in, um, that she had to give herself these hormone shots, which are not fun you know, to do that, and then she had to go pre-chemo and then chemo during the, the transplant itself. And that there's a hundred days where you're sitting and waiting and not knowing if it's actually going to take. And that's mind boggling, just not knowing if all that that you did could not maybe even work. And so it's, um, it's not for the meek. I mean, she lost all of her hair. Um, she, she, her skin peeled from head to toe. She lost all of her skin twice. Um, it's a, it's a process. It is a process.
0: (laughs) So I just want to say, if you're listening, I want you to visit the show notes page because we will link to some of Genesis early videos where she really took the world on her journey. She allowed other people to see her experience getting a bone marrow transplant and I know for from my perspective as a mom I was eager to watch Genesis but it was a grueling process and I know a couple times watching I burst into tears because you know I'm not going to I'm not going to give away the story because I want people to watch the videos but it takes a lot out of you. And so many things can change. And sometimes that journey to wellness can have it's not a a 180 line. Mm -hmm. It can have some bumps, some curves, (laughs) some (laughs) loops. And I feel like in Genesis case, there were some loops that she went through um, without fully, you know, I want people to watch her story. But Um, you know, maybe we could give them a little bit of a teaser and share what's one of the complications that happened for Genesis while she was on that journey to be cured of sickle cell disease.
1: Well, we thought we were on our way home after the hundred days. Matter of fact, she um, knew around the 80th day, which was really pretty cool. And we were preparing to come home And then she started having complications um, where she could not eat, her stomach was bothering her. And then we started seeing blood in her stool, some different things. And uh, she uh, developed PTLD, which is post-transplant lymphoma disease, which is cancer. And so now here she is, um, still not really fully healed from the transplant itself, and having to battle something else. But now she doesn't have SS, she has the trait, which I think helped prepare her for her cancer. And so her cancer battle is a whole nother story. And um, she's living today to tell it. (laughs) And she was probably one of the few, if not only, I don't know, Um, sickle cell patient that can say that they've had sickle cell and cancer, because that's usually not something that happens because of the sickle formation of the sickle cell. Usually you're not able to get cancer. And we didn't know about that either until then.
0: So I want to share here, the very first patient that I found out about who had a bone marrow transplant was in 1984 at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And the patient was a child and she had leukemia mm. and sickle cell disease and so to cure her of her leukemia they gave her a bone marrow transplant and that's actually how doctors found out that bone marrow transplants would cure a person of both because in her case when they found out her cancer was gone they also found out that her sickle cell was gone so Look into that story research got it.
1: to what's her name. Do you remember her Elle? name
0: is Kimberlyn Wilson George, I actually wrote a, I have a book um, called the ultimate sickle cell activity book, and in that book I talk about the history of sickle cell disease and She is one of the stories that I feature in the book. It's for adults and youth. I really bought it so that people could, um, I created it so that people could learn about sickle cell in a fun way. And so that's one of the stories that really touched me. And I was actually able to meet Kimberlyn. She's still with us today. And she's still both cancer free and also sickle cell free. And so she has an amazing story. So it can happen. You know, I just want to say that there are some people who do have both cancer and sickle cell disease It's not it's not something that you know is. Is as rare as we once thought it was, and so um, I just wanted to share that with everybody. And you know you just talked into some talked about some of the really emotional moments, and I think as a caregiver learning that you know you just cured this this life-changing illness because sickle cell, yes, it's something that the patient has themselves, but when the family is taking care of the patient, it becomes the, the family's illness. Mm -hmm. And as a caregiver myself, you know, some people will be like, Oh my gosh, she's obsessed with sickle cell. She's always talking about sickle cell, but it does really frame your worldview. Mm -hmm. So now the way I look at the world is from a different perspective, and so for you, you've had to have so much strength from all different aspects. What type of support did you receive you know when you're when you sign up for a clinical trial, they do give you some financial support, but even outside of the financial support like actually doing the clinical trial. What what are some supports that you need because for me one of the scariest parts from my perspective is that emotional turmoil and and the cancer diagnosis too afterwards it's like lord
1: <laughs> you know like if you are a person
0: of faith it's like god you said you can't give me more than Ooh. i can bear but this is a bit
1: much so so very true so very true i i, I that was the first thing i was like you've got to be kidding me this baby has just gone through this and now she's got to go through this too. But um, as far as a caregiver, <clears throat> the support that I, I, I got or received was um, the other caregivers that were staying with us at the facility that we stayed at where she wasn't in the hospital. They had different, you know, people that you would talk to from um, being out, Preparing your meals or whatever. And then they also had um, little sessions that we would get together from time to time. But that was kind of hard to plan around all that was happening for everybody on a different schedule, our children going through different things. So it was mostly in passing each other or by email or by, just by texting each other um, and just being supportive to each other and praying for each other, basically. But and then the nurses, they're beyond, they, they are beyond their jobs, definitely. Um, they are there for you holding your hands, some more than others, <laughs> become your favorite. But um, and the staff that was at um, NIH, they have different people uh, that help you out as well.
0: Is that recovery period like six months? Or is it just the 100 days where you are in a, a specific location?
1: The 100 days are is in the hospital. Okay. And so you're on a particular floor. They have a floor for transplant um, patients. And so it's not just sickle cell patients. It's you know patients that are receiving bone marrow for all different other kind of reasons as well. Um, Yes, yeah, so you're in with a like group of people <laughs> um, on the same floor, um, kind of basically confined to your thing and what's going on because it's a revolving door. The um, doctors are constantly coming in from um, all different teams that you're on because they have a pain team. Then they have the team that's following you as well. Um, and depending upon what other problems you may be having, they have a team to cover that as well. So it's, it's consuming.
0: Are you able to, are you in contact with anybody from that floor still? Cause I feel like that's kind of maybe a life-changing experience that you're
1: sharing with others. Um, yes. Um, I do have contact with those nurses and um, one of the staff members as well, and as well as some of the parents that were going through some of the same thing, we do um, keep in touch with each other. Awesome. I think that's beautiful. And
0: I know that emotionally, just, you know, we talked a little bit about the faith of it all. Did you have any outside groups connect with you when they found out Genesis was going through a bone marrow transplant? Are there any sickle cell foundations that focus on this particular population?
1: You mean as far as caregivers?
0: So caregivers, or, you know, if they find out um a sickle cell patient is going through a bone marrow transplant, do they contact you, maybe send you a care package, send you a letter? Um you know, I don't, I don't know what they do, but is there a group that does something like that?
1: Um the only group is the um Sickle Cells um Consortium. Consortium. Yeah, they did send her a package. Um and then she also received a package from the Cancer uh, Society as well. Um, it's a nice package um, from from both of the groups. And yes, they did contact her. We also were seeking out things, you know, because uh, we didn't want it to stop there just because she had been cured of the disease. She wanted to go on and to continue to advocate. So um, she has continued to do that. Be the Match has. Um, also reached out to her. They were the ones that actually sent her with the um, equipment to actually uh, film her whole journey. So they gave the equipment to her and that's how she was able to do that. Wow.
0: You know, I just talked about that. You know, I'm so grateful for the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, but I would think that there would be you know, a, a different nonprofit that solely because the sickle cell consortium, they do so many different things, but I would think that there would be maybe one nonprofit and you know, maybe it doesn't exist right now. Maybe that's something that will exist going forward because I feel like the families that are going through a bone marrow transplant need unique care and unique love. And from, you know, just hearing you speak, share your story and your perspective, it's nice to know that
1: someone knows that you're going through it and they're loving on you. Genesis is actually trying to, is it's putting together a nonprofit called Sickled Inspired. And once she finishes school, she thought she was going to finish it in the fall this year. Uh, she has a, she's seeking a, or she's finishing up with a child development and psychology degree. Um, Once she finishes up with that, she's going to be probably putting more towards that and trying to actually develop something for that community.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. That's like, you know, even before I thought it, it was already in the works. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And just hearing you talk has been so comforting to me. I know everybody who's listening is like, wow, you know, because it's one of those wow stories where it kind of just captivates you. My heart is beating fast because it's so many things I could ask you, but I, you know, I'm just grateful that you spent a little bit of time with us to share with us what it has been like for you and Genesis. So my last question, and I hate to yes. you know, say <laughs> this is the last question because I have just enjoyed talking to you myself. And the last question is, what should other families in the SCD community know about the bone marrow transplant process?
1: that first that they're, they're out there. Um, she only went to one of many different avenues to be able to receive bone marrow transplant and that you have to speak up and, and, and ask for it because unfortunately we didn't find out through her physician. It was just by chance that we found out. So I think that you have to be present you have to ask questions and you have to seek it out. And it is a possibility. And they're only getting better because this is not something that just started. You know, they've been researching for a long time and it's come a long way. And so, um, if it's something that somebody really wants to participate in, all they have to do is just start asking questions with their doctor and start getting on the internet and you can even look at NIH, you know, National Institute of Health. Go there and or uh, to that website and actually ask questions.
0: Thank you. Thank you. If you are listening right now and you are considering or want to learn more about the clinical trials that are out there, go to clinicaltrials.gov and learn more about the clinical trials that are available and the ones that are available for sickle cell patients. Thank you so much for your time and for letting us know such a unique journey and experience that you had as a caregiver. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Caring is Giving. Thank
1: you, Al. It was a pleasure meeting you again <laughs> and uh, for having me on your podcast. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I
0: know you enjoyed listening to that episode just as much as we did. So please subscribe. Head to your podcast player and click subscribe. And also leave us a review. Tell a friend about the Vitamin SC3 podcast.